was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, episode number four. This is the podcast where we talk about everyone's favourite licensed troubleshooter, James Bond 007. Now, so far, we've been uh, we've been overwhelmed by your messages of support, so uh, we thank you all for those, uh, and we're glad that our listenership have been enjoying our reviews of the films so far. Uh, we don't have a anything like a Patreon page. Uh, we're not going to pretend that our content is contingent on your money. Uh, we'd be happy, and indeed we are happy, talking about Bond for free. And I just realized we've backed ourselves into a corner uh, if we ever set up a Patreon. Uh, but do lend us your support anyway. Uh, you can uh, feel free to go over to Facebook and Instagram, where we're under the title, our full title, of Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, or on Twitter, uh, we're under the handle of Moore Cubby. So uh, do go over there, lend us your support on social media. Or you can go with the more direct approach, our email uh, Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com uh, if you have any questions for us. Now, in our last episode, we discussed probably the most well-known Bond film, Goldfinger, uh, and I think we were all in broad agreement that it was an outstanding Bond film, equal parts exciting, suspenseful, humorous, a film that really set out the framework or drew the blueprints for all future Bond films to follow. And so this week, we are talking about the film that did follow Goldfinger just one year later, and that was Thunderball. So what is Thunderball? Quite simply, it's the codename of the operation that Bond goes on in this film, despite the Tom Jones song making it sound like he's the villain. But uh, more than that, it's, it's quite a different film to the ones that we've covered so far. Uh, it promoted itself as the, the biggest Bond of all in the posters. So uh, we'll f- we're going to find out whether it is the, the dangerous and savage golden grotto shark of the waters, or is it an ugly blobfish hidden in the depths? So uh, let's find out with my usual hosts. Firstly, it's the man who eats conch chowder just because he bloody loves it. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? I'm very well, thanks, Martin. I'm uh, looking forward to delving into the uh, deep and murky world of Thunderball and uh, and giving a few uh, top tips and facts about uh, the cars and a bit of the trivia too. And I believe you wanted some shout-outs, Phil? Yes, I would like to do a couple of quick shout-outs to our um, some of our fans that have been um, listening in. So my, it's actually my fiance Hannah, who will be celebrating her 31st birthday on uh, Tuesday this week. So we'd like to wish her a very happy birthday. And to my dad, who is a really big Bomb fan as well. So I did promise i'd give him a quick mention um he celebrates his 70th birthday bill if your um if your fiance hannah were herself a bond woman which one do you think she would be and why i would say can i say m what bernard lee's m no judy dench's m you're gonna you're gonna compare her to judy dench's m is it no no i'm not no i'm not i'm gonna compare her to money penny i'm gonna say she'd be money penny so she's gone from your boss to your secretary. So moving you out of hot water, if your dad were a Bond villain, which would he be? Oh, well, he's got no hair left, so it'd be Blofeld, sir, you only live twice. Is he a fan of cats? 
More or less. He likes dogs, but I'm sure he'd like cats as well. He's owned them before. Oh, very good. Yeah, here we go then. Yep. And secondly, he acts while other men just talk, although it would be helpful if he talks because this is an audio-only podcast. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good. Yeah, you do in audio form miss a lot of the acting that I always give to pretty much everything I say on this podcast. So it is very disappointing. Uh, We're just waiting for those lucrative TV contracts to come in so that we can take this onto the box and into people's living rooms. Uh, I'm very good, thank you. I enjoyed last week. Going over Goldfinger again is always a pleasure. You're just transformed back to the eight, nine-year-old boy you were when you first watched it and just chuckle all the way through it. Uh, Thunderball has also been a pleasure to go back to, but for a very different reason, which I'm sure we'll go on to later. Okay, so let's uh, jump into the deep end with our first segment. It's over to you, Adam, with the film synopsis. Okay, so this is Thunderball, the fourth James Bond film based on the ninth James Bond novel. Uh, Terence Young, who directed Dr. No and From Russia With Love, returns to the director's chair for this outing. And of course, Sean Connery returns as Bond. Uh, Made for a budget of $9 million. This is in context three times the budget of Goldfinger. And it goes on after reissue to gross $141 million worldwide. So this was an absolutely colossal hit. And in context, that remains the highest grossing Bond film of all time, adjusted for inflation, until Skyfall was released in 2012. Uh, It was released in December 1965, so still a full 23 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout role in the movie Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! And it wins the second Oscar for the James Bond series for special effects, which went to John Steers. So, without any further ado, to take you through the plot of Thunderball, here's Alan Partridge. We're looking down the barrel of a gun at a man who this time actually is Sean Connery. Bang! Blood dribbles down. James Bond's at a funeral where he punches the widow in the face. Except it's a spectre man in drag who Bond fights him fast forward before escaping off the roof in an actual bloody jetpack he had lying around. Roll the titles, lots of skinny dipping ladies. So he strikes like Thunderball. In Paris, Blofeld electrocutes someone at a spectre corporate accounts meeting before Largo, a sexy silver-haired pirate, outlines a plan to nick off with two atomic bombs. Meanwhile, Bond checks into the Hammer Health Spa of Horrors, where he finds the mummy and Count Lipula, who nearly kills him on a spine-stretching machine. I must be six inches tall. Bond's fine, though. He's even got enough strength left for sauna sex and a mink glove massage with a naughty nurse. Bond discovers that the mummy is only the bloody pilot Spectre replaced to nick the bombs, and he tells him he wants to jet off to the Bahamas. The pilot's sister lives there, and I love water sports. Bond meets the sister Domino, a former Miss France who's never knowingly out of swimwear, and learns that she's Largo's girlfriend and tries to seduce her. What sharp little eyes you've got. Wait till you get to my teeth. Bond knows there's something funny going on with the sexy pirate, so he dresses up as a cat burglar and goes snooping round his yacht and house, almost getting blown up with grenades and eaten by sharks in the process. Then he stands up Domino at a very loud carnival to knob Spectre's sexiest assassin, Fiona Volpe, who actually thinks he's a rubbish lover. The great James Bond only has to make love to a woman and she hears heavenly choirs singing. Well, not this woman. Well, you can't win them all. He does win, though, as later he gets a shot at a dodgy outdoor dance club. Mind if my friend sits this one out? She's just dead. Bond tells Domino her sexy pirate boyfriend killed her brother, then harpoons a henchman to a tree. I think you got the point. He sends Domino to spy on Largo, but he catches and tortures her. 
Cigar for heat, ice for cold. Applied scientifically and slowly, very slowly. After an underwater fight that lasts for approximately seven years, Bond removes the bombs and jumps onto a super yacht for a fist fight with Largo and some other goobers while the yacht speeds off towards a dodgy blue screen. Just before the sexy pirate shoots Bond, Domino takes her revenge and offs him with a harpoon. I'm glad I killed him. You're glad. They jump off the exploding boat and Bond's magic penis has saved the day again. The end. Excellent stuff, Alan, and thanks previously there, Adam. So uh, Thunderball, a very uh, interesting film, certainly different to the uh, the previous outing of Goldfinger. Personally, I thought that uh, Sean Connery looked very comfortable in the role, his last excellent outing as Bond. I thought he's comfortable in the character, uh, despite I did have some reservations about some areas of the film, but we'll, we might talk about those later. But uh, what do we think, Phil? What, uh, what were your overall impressions of Thunderball? Again, I really enjoy it as a as a concept and as a film. I think this period is kind of the golden era, not just for the Bond films, but also for kind of British cinema as well. Basically, I think from Doctor No to You Only Live Twice, those films are kind of, they kind of, def- again, they define the era and they define sort of Connery's Bond as well. So I think that Thunderball is a very, very important film in the franchise in terms of how it moves it along again. I think that having the Panavision um, as quite a new technology helped it as well. So that, I mean, obviously, in certain respects, it hasn't perhaps aged as well as some of the other Bond films in terms of the quality of the the film footage. But it's still a really good setup and a really good film. We, we mentioned about Goldfinger last week, about the fact he was quite slimy. Um, and sort of Largo is kind of, is a creep, basically. You know, you feel very on edge with him. And I think it's just a great, I mean, part of the film as well, I did really enjoy, there are quite a few gaffes in it as well. So it's a bit more, it's a bit more of a caper, this one. So it's a bit more of a, you know, it's it's still got the quality behind it, but it's, there are some quite entertaining moments in it as well. Um, Obviously, we will come to that a little bit later on through the the podcast. But yes, I really do enjoy this one. Uh, yeah, so you touched on the uh, the main villain, Phil, of uh, Largo. The first point of contention I would have is that I don't find him very menacing at all. I think he looks kind of bored, even constipated throughout most of the film. <laughs> and and when Bond goes to meet him in the, ironically, the Mar-a-Lago style <laughs> Palmyra, he kind of is too friendly to Bond, I feel, in that scene. I don't get any menacing vibes from him at all, apart from right at the end of the film when he does go in and threatens Domino. Uh, I think that's when we see the menacing side. But uh, but for me, he wasn't, maybe again, as you say, maybe it's coming after Goldfinger that I consider such a great villain. Uh, I wasn't that impressed. So uh, what what did uh, what were your thoughts on, on the main villain, Adam? I actually really like Largo. I think they're doing something, again, a little bit different with this character um, to differentiate him from who we've seen before. And again, it's laying the foundation for a new type of Bond villain which essentially a villain which, for me, is the dark side of Bond himself. Uh, Let's not forget, Largo is Spectre number two. He's second only to Goldfinger. And in that first scene when the whole Spectre array is there in um, the conference room in Paris, whilst everyone else is reporting back, he's the guy waiting. He's got the big plan, which is going to bring in the most money of everyone. And I think he brings a real calmness and a professionalism, actually, to Largo. I think that 
because he underplays that. He's much more sinister and accomplished than Goldfinger. The ego sort of isn't there. He's not a lone master criminal. He's part of this organization and an incredibly crucial cog in this organization. Uh, and I think um, that he plays that really well just by being very relaxed and by not feeling like he has to be as menacing or as bombastic, perhaps, as other Bond villains. But Largo is someone who has a genuine level of sexual threat and is someone who, in the action stakes as well, can rival Bond, potentially. Like, he gives as good as he gets when Bond finally does fight him. Uh, and remember, at Palmyra, he's not really being full-on sinister to Bond because he knows that this bigger operation is happening and he needs to try and keep Bond at arm's length or n belay his suspicions to the extent that they can carry out that plan. And he knows if he does have a very obvious overt attempt at Bond's life, Bond and MI6 are going to know that the bombs are there in the Bahamas. Um, so I actually quite like Largo. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll take those points, Adam. I still think he looks constipated, though, for many, for many of the scenes. But also, uh, we've mentioned the underwater scenes. Of course, we can't talk about Thunderball without looking at this area. Um, so what did we make of... Uh, my impression was that they'd filmed all of this underwater scene, which was very groundbreaking at the time. They had a lot of footage, and they thought, oh, well, we can't waste this. We've spent so much money. We'd better put it all on the screen. Um, and even though I felt sometimes I did quite like some of the action sequences, I know one of the other criticisms is that it's all too slow. Uh, but I did quite like some of them, particularly when the American army comes down and uh, they're fighting. I thought they, they were quite entertaining. And um, the way that Bond kind of goes around, swims around and pokes his nose into other people's battles, much like he did in From Russia With Love. But uh, what were your impressions over all of the... Uh, did we think that there was too much underwater scenery, perhaps? In a word, yes. I think, it, although it was a good idea, I think it does go on for perhaps too long. And it's, you know, they could have shortened that sequence. I know they put a lot of investment into the, the fight sequence. My, also, my endearing memory of the fight sequence is also when uh, there is a scene where Sir Sean Connery is fighting with one of Largo's villains on the seabed and obviously fires the harpoon into his visor. Um, for a very split second, it then swaps to the dummy that they clearly use. Obviously, they can't fire an actual harpoon into Stuntman's face. So it, there is quite an amusing scene where it just quickly switches to the dummy and then switches back again. Overall, it is in terms of the choreography and in terms of the pacing, I guess, of the, the fight sequence itself, it is quite well done. I just think it does go on for quite a long time. You're right. On a visual level, there's also the fact that this is the first aquatic bond and we get all of those underwater battles, which when I watched it again, I found spectacular. I mean, they look phenomenal. But they are unexciting. And I think part of that possibly comes from the fact that you have to film those sequences with a separate underwater unit. If you look at the opening credit sequence, those sequences have their own cameraman. They have their own director. They have their own editor, almost, in a sense. Uh, and of course, the reason they go underwater, I think, is because the previous year, 1964, Jacques Cousteau, the great French uh, underwater explorer, uh, has released World Without Sun, which is his first full-colour film of life in the ocean depths, and that wins an Oscar for Best Documentary. And I think possibly where the film comes slightly, gets slightly frayed at the scenes, is that there is a juxtaposition between the speed and the suspense with which the on-land action sequences are filmed versus the more leisurely, let's say, pace and the greater visual spectacle that is given to the underwater battles. Yeah, I'd go along with that, Adam. I think the the beginning 
the pre-title sequence is uh, action-filled and exciting. And even the, I've seen, or I've heard people uh, attack the ending as well. Uh, I mean, I guess it is kind of unrealistic, <laughs> but actually I quite enjoyed that sequence, even though it was a bit ridiculous. Yeah, it's, I think it's just feel a bit clumsy. I mean, also when you're watching it as a kid, it, it, you don't particularly notice it as much, but watching it back now, when I sort of see it now, and you see it again, it hasn't really aged well. And it's it's just it is just the fact that you've got the green screen where again it seems to have just sped the film up where they, where they seem to be going about two hundred mile an hour through the water, and they're miraculously managing to steer at the last minute round these rocks, which they've all, by the by the time you get to the blue screen or the green screen, you've already hit them. So it's you know it's it doesn't really match up. So that is probably one of the uh, the quirks of the film, let's say. But um, but just going back to Adam's point earlier about the um, the underwater sequence as well. I think it's quite telling that this is kind of the age of the jet set as well. So there's a lot more glamour to this. Also, we're set in Nassau. Instantly, with the criminal layers as well, nobody ever tries to take over the world from Milton Keynes, do they? It's always got to be somewhere tropical or, you know, somewhere exotic. So it's, um, I'd, I'd love to see a Bond film just set in Coventry. Just as like, today, sir, we are going to take over the world from Coventry. And just everybody's going like, what, eh? Why are you going there? Apologies to our been. West Midlands viewers, <laughs> listeners. It's it's a lovely city. Can I apologise to Milton Keynes as well? Um, I don't I don't entirely know why Phil's had a go at you all there. Um, the early Bond films always struggle a bit with blue screen, don't they? I mean, in Goldfinger even, which is largely you know a couple of things aside a flawless film. The scenes of Connery driving in the Swiss Alps when he's in the Aston, and quite clearly it's a blue screen of the Swiss Alps behind him. Uh, is also very obvious. I Again, I really didn't mind it, though, in this film, certainly not as much as I have done before, because I think part of it is just Peter Hunt, the editor, being quite avant-garde and being very experimental with how he's putting these action scenes together. Let's not forget, the modern action film is being invented before our very eyes with these films, and it's being built upon film by film. And I think the speed and that sense of chaos and anarchy that he's bringing to those fight sequences is really impressive. And it's also very, very well handled uh, in terms of the speed at which he cuts sequences together in the murder of Fiona Volpe in the dance club, when she's dancing with Bond in the middle of the floor and the henchmen are surrounding him. And he knows that someone's gonna do something to try and kill him. And then we see the gun slowly rise through the curtain on the stage and John Barry's music and the diegetic music of the bongo drums getting louder and louder. Yeah, I thought it must have been a very loud bongo drum as well, that nobody in the club notices the gunshot. Although I didn't notice it was, did it have a silencer? I can't remember. Well, this, this is the thing I wanted to ask about this. A lot of people in Nassau seem to be very oblivious to sort of odd phenomena happening. I mean, for example, when Bond gets shot by one of the henchmen in the back of the leg, and he's in the middle of the, uh, the parade as they're walking through, nobody really bats an eyelid at the fact that he's leaping onto a float. You know, we've got all the girls sat there just going like, yeah, no, this is perfectly normal, you know. People... Do you think that's possibly because this is the Bahamas and everyone's just having such a good time and has had so much rum at this point, but I don't think they're particularly interested in all these things happening. Did you notice that they're in the carnival, there are some people wearing 007 hats? That's a bit of trivia there, Phil. No, I was going to say, I was going to bring this up. What it was, this links to another bit of trivia, so... The people in the film, they were going to get cut, the people that were wearing the 007 hats. However, you'll also notice there was a dog urinating in the middle of the street in that same sequence, which was also due to get cut from the film. 
However, for whatever reason, the production team decided that they wanted to keep that in. So the 007 hat wearers, although they were told to, you know, take them off and, and leave the sequence, are kept in because of the fact that you'll see the dog in the middle of the street where he's sort of just wandering around. Um, and they kept that bit in. So because of the dog, they also kept in the 007 sequence. Yeah, I think this brings us to a wider point about that I wanted to make about the editing, which seems we've mentioned the underwater scenes. Some of them could have been cut down. And I think in general, I think some of the scenes could have been just deleted and it would have been a much faster paced plot. So, for example, Bond goes out with Lighter in the helicopter twice, the first time completely useless. Uh, and on one of the scenes, he's looking through the binoculars and just starts watching a stingray for no reason. And they keep that in the film. Yeah, but again, in the context of the time, everyone's been enthralled with this Jacques Cousteau underwater marine biology film from the year before. And so at the time, there was a huge appetite for this kind of stuff. There's, there's no David Attenborough on BBC One in 1965, you know. If you wanted to see this stuff, you go and see Thunderball and you can see A, the marine wildlife, and B, Sean Connery in pretty much very tight short shorts swimming amongst them. It's something for everyone. Did anyone else notice the fact that Bond is accompanying Domino to the carnival and then he sort of leaves her alone when the power cut's going to happen and he has to have a little rummage around Largo's house at night uh, and then afterwards ends up getting um, cornered by Fiona Volpe in his hotel room and that then in, after that ensues a whole other sequence all through which Domino's been left at the carnival with Felix Leiter. Bond says to Felix on the way out, oh just look after the girl for me, I've got to go and do this. So basically Domino and Leiter have had an impromptu date night and we never go back to them. You know, we, we don't see how this went or anything. And I'm just wondering, you know, what happened here? Did, was something going on between Domino and Leiter? Is this a four-way affair that's happening? Yeah, I, I imagine, to be honest, controversially, I think this is probably the least good-looking Felix Leiter so far that we've seen in the film. So I, I, don't, I don't imagine he'd have had much luck with Domino. Did you not see the guy in Goldfinger with the pork pie hat who sat in chaos? <laughs> for half the film. You're actually saying that Rick Van Nutter is less attractive than Chet Linder. Yes, I am. I am controversially saying that Rick Van Nutter that played Lighter in this film is not as handsome as Chet Linder in Goldfinger. That is an incredible statement, Phil, but uh, at least Chet Linder has one fan. As useless as Lighter is in these films, you can't say Chet Linder is more attractive. Well, is Chet Linder even alive anymore? I can't imagine he'd still be going now. We're not talking about whether he's alive or dead, Phil. <laughs> I'm just saying, well... They are both dead. That is very <laughs> <ruin that. laughs> yeah, Going back to what you said, Adam, I think I, I, when I was a kid watching the Bond films, I was always intrigued by the moments that we don't see in the film. So I'd like to think that Leiter was having it away with Domino secretly. <laughs> and it, kind of just throughout the whole series, I'd like to know what was happening. Like, for example, back in Goldfinger, when... Uh, when Bond goes to get the Dom Perignon and leaves Jill on the bed. There's got to be some kind of scene in which Oddjob is just hanging around, maybe just waiting inside the wardrobe for Bond to go out of the bedroom, just flicking his hat up and down. 
I always uh, wonder what the Bond villains are actually doing in their spare time when, you know, they've got a bit of downtime from the actual plot that's at hand. How are they amusing themselves? Obviously, Largo's got Domino as his uh, living mistress, so he's presumably okay. And he's got his little clay pigeon shooting range uh, on, uh, on Palmyra at his estate. But then you think of someone like Goldfinger, there are going to be long periods of time when him and Oddjob are just travelling together. What on earth are they going to do together? Oddjob doesn't speak any English, for one thing. Also, he's a Korean sumo. I mean, what are they going to do? Is it like just Goldfinger maybe reads to him? I always wondered. Is Goldfinger just there with like a copy of The Times every morning? Hey, listen to this, Oddjob. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that Goldfinger definitely reads the Daily Mail. I don't think he'd read The Times. No, I think Goldfinger's Telegraph, actually. I think James Bond's probably also a Telegraph reader. What do you think? What do we think Largo, apart from the Bahaman Times? I think maybe Largo reads Le Monde, the French newspaper. I think he's a little bit more sophisticated. No, I reckon Largo would read something like Vogue or something like that. He'd read something about the stuff, maybe not. I, th- I think he bankrolls the sun and has Domino's page three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would make more sense. I was going to say it's more likely for Domino to be reading Vogue with her amazing array of swimwear. Shall we talk a little bit more about Domino? Because to give Thunderball a massive amount of credit, I know we've disagreed a little on the pacing of the film. I think it's generally speaking okay, and we've disagreed a little bit on Largo. I think he's quite good. Martin, you're not so uh, convinced. I actually think the two central female characters in this are a huge step forward uh, for the Bond films in general. Uh, And part of that does come from Domino. There's a genuine three-way sexual tension between Domino and Bond and Largo. Largo's not an unattractive man. He can give her this lifestyle, which she perhaps cynically has decided she's going to run with, you know, to keep herself in this very comfortable jet-set lifestyle, I guess. Uh, And so when Bond is trying to win her over to his side, he's genuinely having to seduce her. And so this is the exact opposite to the trouble we got into in the last film with how he has to seduce Pussy Galore in the end. But he has to properly seduce her and win her over from someone who's not just a grotesque, who actually has given her this very comfortable lifestyle that he has to lure her her away from. Of course, it's ultimately the prospect of revenge that does the job. But I think there's a real frisson in those scenes between Bond and Domino, particularly in the second third of the film. And John Barry's music, he uses that really lush underscore of the Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang theme to underscore those scenes. And I think it lends a genuine frisson to them, which I think is excellent. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Claudine Auger's performance. I think maybe she's slightly underutilized. And in terms of the dubbing, I wasn't very happy that they used the same. It's very obvious that they used the same actress to dub her as uh, Honey Rider when you're watching the films back to back as we're doing. Uh, In terms, I think she's top three, perhaps, in terms of physical appearance of a Bond girl. And (laughs) Yeah, go on, Martin. You go and rank those Bond women by appearance. You give us a top three. That won't get us in trouble at all. Although controversially, I don't actually rate Controversially, Bond. Phil thinks that Czech Linda is better. <laughs> no. no. Phil, no, based on I... your love of Czech Linda, we're not going to pay any attention to you anymore on who you do and don't think is attractive in Oh, me. for goodness sake. Well, I was, I was about to say, I was about to pay homage to Luciana Paluzzi as Fiona Volpe. I think she is, you know, we see this first proper, you know, attractive Bond villain. And she is, she steals the show for me. I mean... When you look at when they're in the hotel room and Sean Connery as Bond has just made love to her, you know, it's quite aggressive, not aggressive, but it's quite a passion-filled love sequence, which was quite, again, quite groundbreaking for the time. And the comment that she makes where, you know, where, where as Adam mentioned before, where it's saying that, um, you know, you think you can, you know, change any girl over to the good side, but not this girl. 
that was actually put in as a direct response to a, a critique of Goldfinger, where obviously we see Bond, you know, use his manly charms to be able to turn pussy galore to help him in his um, in his own endeavours. And obviously, it's quite it's quite interesting that you know the character in this sequence isn't going to be swayed by his you know his actions and his attempts to try and bring him over to his way of thinking. You know, she's she's her own woman and she won't be swayed this time. Yeah, I would agree with all that, Phil. Uh, and thank you very much for leading us on to I do think Fiona Volpe, as played by Luciana Paluzzi, is a game changer in terms of the Bond films. Time and time again, in these first six films, I would argue, made in the 60s, we see the prototypes um, and the gold standards for every element the Bond films would employ afterwards introduced one by one in these films. And Volpe is the first femme fatale in the Bond movies. You know, we see Helga Brandt in uh, the next film, You Only Live Twice, and much later on, Grace Jones as Mayday and Famke Janssen as Zenya Onatop. She's the first real femme fatale who is not interested in Bond's charms as much as she can exploit them and use them against him almost to kind of catch him off his guard and have him captured. This is, you know, a member of Spectre's execution branch, no less. This is a huge leap forward for the Bond films. And this is, you know, a really important and still, I think, very unsung and underrated Bond woman. Yeah, in previous episodes, we've uh, we've spoken about the HR department of Spectre, when we find out that they do have the execution branch this time around. Yeah, I wanted to chat about that. I love the fact they've got an execution branch. I just think that's just such a brilliant plot point that they put into it. And also, when you first see Largo, when he goes to the meeting, you know, there's this fantastic secret lair that they've got in the embassy, sort of criminal masterminds that are around the table and they're meeting with number one. And you just see this great scene where there's the guy underneath who's clearly just taking the meeting minutes and it's just hilarious it's just this random bloke just sort of tapping away just going like yep no i'm i'm just the admin assistant for this i'm i'm not taking part at all i just love the idea of the fact that not only has must the hr department be in turmoil because of the fact of how many people get offloaded in each film but also the fact of who is building these fantastic sets you know but i just love the way it sets it up in this one where it's you know it's got this this kind of sinister meeting room. Yeah, this is another triumph of um, set building from Ken Adam, the great production designer. We talked a little bit about his Cathedral of Gold for Fort Knox and just how well he does on a limited budget in Doctor No. The two conference rooms in this contrast each other brilliantly, just the cold corporate steel grey of Spectre's uh, conference room. And then later when we have all the double O's summoned, to see M and the Home Secretary. It's a much more historic, golden, gloriously decorated room with a huge painting on the wall that reveals a big map. There's a lovely contrast between those two meetings of the top brass in these conflicting organisations. But I also wondered, just to go on to those um, electrified chairs a bit, do you ever think Blofeld, because he gets through people pretty quickly, there's several number fives across all of these early Bond films. He's just had a time when he decides, right, I've had enough of all of them, and he electrifies everyone and then holds the entire meeting to himself and just a row of empty chairs. In that situation, what does the secretary taking the minutes write down? I just imagine sitting at the back just silently. Yeah, it'd be very quick, wouldn't it, as a piece of minute-making? Uh, every attendee electrocuted, Blofeld ranting like a madman. The other interesting thing about the Spectre meeting room is actually how many people in it um, go on to sort of have quite decent film careers as, um, as character actors. We see Philip Stone is the British envoy who becomes one of Stanley Kubrick's favourite character actors. He plays Delbert Grady, the 
ghostly demonic butler in The Shining, and he appears in A Clockwork Orange as well. And we also get André Moran, the great French actor in this, who goes on to star in numerous Pink Panther films, uh, along with a um, friend of the podcast who we mention every week, Bert Kwok. Just thought I'd get him in there. Love ourselves a bit of Bert Kwok. <laughs> we do. And can we also give a quick shout out, because I had no idea and hadn't remembered he was in this film until I saw it again, to Earl Cameron, who plays Pinder, uh, MI6's contact in the Bahamas. Earl Cameron's a really important actor in British cinema. He does the first cinematic interracial kiss in, I think, a film in the late 50s or the early 60s. And he's still going today. He's over 100. He does a bit part in, I think, Inception or a, a Christopher Nolan film. But a really important actor who I'd totally forgotten has this little small role in Thunderball. So big up to Earl. Yeah, as we were talking about, uh, it's good that you've mentioned Pinder there, Adam. We were talking about the the conference rooms of the the two opposing sides. I was interested to get your take on what we... There's always some kind of tension in the Bond film between getting the balance right, Bond working on his own uh, as an agent and being part of a team. Uh, I felt that in Thunderball, they tried to shoehorn in lots of different allies and some different henchmen for Largo. Uh, and I felt they didn't, perhaps because of the, the length of the underwater sequences and the action scenes, uh, we didn't, I felt like they were shoehorned in and we didn't really get much development of either Bond's allies or the, uh, the henchmen. I think that's a very fair point, and that's particularly prevalent in the case of Paula, who's the other Bond woman in the film and, and who is, is there with Bond taking him out on the boat when he makes first contact with Domino who later in the film is captured by Fiona Volpe and who takes cyanide rather than talk and so is, is killed very quickly. And without having done an awful lot, it has to be said. And yeah, you sort of suspect there was probably more footage of her, maybe a few of the scenes left on the cutting room floor that would have built up her character a little bit more and made that death um, much more impactful. Connery registers it when he sees her body at um, Palmyra and he is genuinely grieving and distraught. Like, you know, she seemed a very capable, resourceful ally. But yeah, her and Pinder do fall a little bit by the wayside. But there's so much going on in this film um, and so much they've added in from the book as well in order to bulk out that middle section in the Bahamas. But I think, yeah, there, there must have been casualties. Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to the, uh, the henchman, uh, Mr. Vargas. Now, he comes under some heavy criticism from Largo. You do not drink, you do not smoke, you do not make love. What do you do? And I feel like the, the audience is asking that question as well. What the hell is he doing in the film? Well, he's the silent killer, isn't he? That's the moment when he is trying to very subtly intimidate Bond. And I think he has a few moments in that. There's the moment he sort of rears around and has his shotgun, his clay pigeon shooting gun pointed at Bond and he has to very carefully bat it away. And I think the point of that Vargas scene is Vargas is, I think, his top man. It was Vargas who was dropping the grenades um, into the sea to try and kill Bond when he's snooping around the disco volante earlier in the film. So I think that's one of those very subtle moments of Largo saying or trying to say, stay back. And it's not as overt as Goldfinger telling Odd Job to crush a golf ball and decapitate a statue. Uh, but Vargas, yeah, oddly he's not built up in the way that Oddjob is because, of course, he's not as visually impactful. He's not as bizarre or memorable. Yeah, I thought he looked a bit like a balding Stephen Merchant, which is why I was less impressed yeah. <laughs> compared to yeah, Apprehension. Yeah, it, it doesn't sort of have the same sort of physical presence as Odd Job or, you know, a henchman that we've seen before, you know, sort of Red Grant and people like that. But Vargas is sort of like, he's almost like a lap dog. He just sort of, he just follows what, whatever Largo tells him to do and he sort of which which maybe makes him more sort of sinister the fact that he just he has no sort of comprehension to think 
Yeah, I think you're right. There is a sense that the minor characters aren't, don't have as much impact in Mrs. Goldfinger. I think part of that is conception, just the way that the whole supporting casting Goldfinger is realised is just so much richer and they just seem to be much more iconic in their own right. Uh, but again, just to finally pick up on this, a, a lot of that will also be because of Terence Young. Um, when Guy Hamilton directed Goldfinger, he has a more innate eye for spectacular landscapes and for, you know, tongue-in-cheek comic moments, which make those lovely things like the, the old Bibby with the Tommy gun at uh, Goldfinger's Swiss factory stand out. And we lose that. But what we gain, um, and I want to talk about very quickly, is brilliant blocking from Terence Young. We've talked a little bit about we're using a widescreen format now, the Super Panavision. And the way that Young stages certain shots in order to bring out the maximum suspense is incredible. One in particular which is great is at the health spa when Bond is checking out the body under all the bandages of um, Domino's brother, as it turns out. Uh, and that's sort of in the middle of the shot. And to the right and in the foreground, we can see Count Lippy just very slowly taking a gun out and applying a silencer. So we know he's there, but Bond doesn't. And then behind him in the background, we start to see a silhouette and a shadow creep across the wall of a second henchman, which Bond does notice. And then from the extreme left of the frame, we see the gun arm creep through the window. And there are loads of moments like that when the way that Young is actually choreographing the action within single shots is really brilliant and suspenseful and it makes brilliant use of the widescreen frame. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? actually okay so our next segment is the uh, the cars and gadgets uh, an excellent segment brilliantly edited is this in reference to uh, the full half an hour version that uh, sadly listeners weren't treated to last uh, week that we were yeah they, well they will be treated to it as uh, perhaps an extra if there's enough appetite for it shall we just release it as a separate bonus oh dear tell you what let's make a deal with our listeners if we get to a thousand followers on any platform, we will release the full bill on the Aston Martin DB5 in, in its entirety as a bonus episode. I, I personally think. think that's cruel to unleash that on the listeners. I, I must apologise. If no, we're making fun death. of you, Phil. We're making fun of you, but it's your expertise and brilliance in cars that makes this segment good. Uh, so uh, what did we have for Thunderball uh, in terms of the cars and gadgets? So we have quite a, a wide mix um, in terms of the cars and gadgets for Thunderball. Obviously, last week, again, we spoke about the Aston Martin DB5 at length, um, and it makes another appearance in this film, albeit as a cameo role. So obviously we see it in the opening sequence, and Bond uses it to make his escape. So we have the bulletproof shield, and this time the all slicks are replaced with water jets to, to debilitate the, um, the chasing henchmen. So it only makes a very passing role in the film. What we probably should have mentioned a little bit more in the last episode was the appearance of the Ford Mustang, which is quite prevalent in Goldfinger and Thunderball. Though at the time, the Ford Mustang, certainly in America, 
was kind of it was a groundbreaking car it was a a car that kind of revolutionized their marketplace and it became overnight it became a success selling i believe over one one and a half million units within the first 24 hours of its release so it is still regarded as the fastest selling car in history in terms of that time scale and obviously the producers wanted to make the most of using it in the film so obviously we see it in goldfinger with tilly masterson and we see it in a different role in this film with fiona volpe using it to sort of to almost quite to scare bond later in the film so obviously she picks up bond after he's escaped the sea and he's sort of being driven back to the hotel and obviously she's sort of trying to make him feel uncomfortable and trying to scare him by driving over 100 miles an hour on those sort of gravel island roads so it's quite an interesting way that they try and demonstrate the performance of the car in this film but perhaps the it's not actually a car that's the most memorable part of um, of Thunderball. Perhaps the vehicle that people remember the most of that film is Largo's Disco Volante, the boat. Now, this was based on a real hydrofoil. It was called the Flying Fish in real life, and and it for real it did extend and separate, so it could actually had its it, it basically had its own exoskeleton that could split from the real boat now as we know disco volante in italian means flying saucer so it's quite a cool name and a quite a cool boat that was that was designed for it and it's it kind of forms part of the, the focus for the film because without the disco volante they can't hide the nuclear weapons you know it's it's basically it's um largo's escape method so you know he uses it at the end to basically split from the attacking military so the u.s military obviously firing upon the boat and he uses it to make his escape i thought i'd also touch on the facts of the gadgets that come into it so as we've mentioned already bond gets a lot more gadgets throughout this film than he's really had before chief among which are probably the jetpack which was based on a real military device in the 1950s now interestingly at the time the working prototype that you see in the film was only usable by two people in the world so the person that you see flying the jetpack in the the wider shots was um an engineer um, and i'll just try and locate his name so it was an engineer so Bond's jetpack was actually flown by engineer Bill Suter, who, as we mentioned, was only one of two people in the world who was actually qualified to fly it. So you get the impression that Bond would have needed extensive training to be able to even control the device. Um, and interestingly, as we see in the sequence, the weight of it, because of also the propulsion needed to get it off the ground, he'd have probably needed a couple of people to fit it for him. So he'd have almost, obviously, we see him exit the um, the henchman's lair, as it were, in the opening scene, scenes of the film. And then he just easily manages to get it onto his back and just obviously fly away with it. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. Some uh, great uh, information there about the the cars and gadgets. Uh, so our next segment is by the book 007. Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? Be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. So Thunderball holds uh, Thunderball the novel that is holds a particularly fascinating and traumatic in some ways uh, position in the history of the Bond movies. I'll talk a little bit about the adaptation first. Uh, in the novel. 
Bond is sent to the health spa specifically by M because he's gotten incredibly out of shape. He's spent eight whole books smoking and drinking his way across the world and has now been sent to brush his act up. So that's the reason for getting him to the health spa in the opening sequence. Uh, for this, because of the scale of the international emergency, Felix Leiter has been seconded back into the CIA for Thunderball. He spends most of the novel series uh, as a member of the Pinkertons, uh, an American private detective agency. And I'll talk a little bit more about why that is when we come to Live and Let Die. Uh, much of the differences come in the middle section of the film. The whole character of Fiona Volpe has been created in order to provide more action and more suspense sequences in the film. In the novel, we are much more focused on Bond's seduction of Domino in order to get close to Largo, who's on a treasure hunt. That's his big cover for being out on the Disco Volante yacht all the time and leaving Domino on the island. In terms of a final battle, uh, it's a US submarine which gives chase to the Disco Volante. It's a whole boat chase across uh, the Bahamas uh, and the final fight takes place not on the super yacht itself but in a cave where again Domino is the one who takes revenge and kills Largo. Uh, this is also in the novels our introduction to Spectre. This is the first time they appear in Fleming's novels both Spectre and Ernst Stavro Blofeld and it's the first I guess in a loose loosely connected trilogy uh, which continues with Honor Majesty's Secret Service and You Only Live Twice. Now, the fascinating thing with Thunderball is that this, alongside Dr. No, originated as a screenplay in the 1950s. It was one of two early attempts by Ian Fleming himself to bring James Bond to the screen. This, when he chooses to adapt that screenplay into the novel Thunderball, causes him and later the Bond producers a whole world of issues uh, because um, one of his collaborators on this early screenplay was a man called Kevin McClory who, when Thunderball the novel is published, sues Fleming because McClory claimed that he had himself come up with the storyline and various characters within it, and in an out-of-court settlement was granted certain rights to the story of Thunderball. And so when Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli purchase the rights, they don't get Casino Royale because that's been sold separately, which explains the, at this point in time in 1965, imminent spoof version of Casino Royale, which um, defecates on cinema screens across the world. But it also means that in terms of adapting Thunderball, they had to cut a deal with Kevin McClory for rights to the story by making a deal whereby Kevin McClory is given a producer's credit on the film in exchange for the Bond producers having the rights to the story for the next 10 years. So that's why in the opening credit sequence, it's the only entry in the series where the producer is not a member of the Broccoli family. It's listed as Kevin McClory. Now, later on, once McClory gets the story rights back, at this point, the Bond series is here to stay and is hugely profitable. And he pretty much spends the rest of his career trying to remake Thunderball and indeed succeeds in the early 80s with Never Say Never Again, the unofficial Bond film, which is, of course, a remake of Thunderball. He tries again to remake it in the early 90s, first with Liam Neeson attached as Bond and afterwards with Dalton himself, who was then the Bond incumbent uh, and had just made License to Kill. But at this point, the Bond series proper is in stasis and so McClory attempts to lure the actual James Bond to another Thunderball remake. The other interesting thing is that because this is the novel in which Spectre and Ernst Stavro Blofeld first appear, Kevin McClory always claimed that he therefore partially owned the rights to those characters, which is why the Bond series proper is unable to use Spectre and Blofeld until many, many decades later when they finally repurchase the rights from Kevin McClory's estate. And of course, the last Bond film reintroduces both of those into the franchise proper. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, in a nutshell, the convoluted history of Thunderball and how 
it created First Fleming and later the Bond producers a whole world of trouble when it comes to who owns the rights to the story and indeed to Bond's arch rivals. Yeah, that's quite an interesting tale with Kevin McClure. It's uh, one would think that if he was so proud of his Thunderball work that he could make another one instead of trying to keep remaking Thunderball over and over again. Well, I guess technically he doesn't own the rights to James Bond himself. He only owns very specifically the rights to the story of Thunderball and to the characters therein. So there's a limit to kind of what he can do. Uh, but it is a very interesting story with McClory. And I kind of don't blame him in a sense. He's always, you know, in official histories of the Bond franchise, made out as this villainous figure who is always, you know, there in the background trying to launch a rival Bond film. Yeah, maybe those films are uh, something we can explore after we've looked at the official Bond titles. Uh, we can take a look at those uh, that dreadful Casino Royale and never say never again. Uh, you, you, you're going to make us watch that Casino Royale, are you? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, the next segment is That's Not Okay Anymore. This is my segment where we take a look at the perhaps non-PC areas of the films. Uh, so actually, I didn't have much for this film, possibly because I was a bit bored with the underwater scenes, so uh, I lost my attention halfway through. But one of the things that I did pick up on was the uh, the slightly, well, we talked about the awkward barn scene in Goldfinger, and there were perhaps a few more rapey vibes at the uh, health centre in Thunderball as well with the nurse. Now, she's brought round to Bond's magic penis by the end, but uh, at the beginning, it's a bit awkward with a forcible kiss and, and basically she has to entertain Bond's magic penis for her to keep her job. Yeah, there's a ri- that is incredibly awkward, isn't it? It's, um, I'll make sure that you keep your job and your livelihood if you have sex with me in this sauna. Yeah, to be honest, he'll be on a sexual assault charge for that. There's no way he's getting away with that in today's world. Um, and it is just I, think, I think at the very least he's banned from that health spa, isn't he? I don't think he's going to be made yeah. a member there. Yeah, it's, to be honest, the whole... I don't know if this is if you guys would agree, but the whole sort of health scene, health spa scene, should I say, um, at the start of the film, it feels a bit of a carry-on film. It's sort of carry-on spying or whatever it is. It's just like you just get the feeling that Kenneth Williams will be in the background somewhere. It's like, oh, madam. Oh, get out of my room, you not him as the Bond. Much later on, there's also very ungentlemanly conduct from uh, Bond when he comes back to his hotel after the Palmyra uh, cat burglar scene. And Fiona Volpe is just in the bathtub and asks him, would you mind giving me something to put on? And he hands her a pair of shoes and then sits down and just starts leering at her. I mean, it's Fiona Volpe. She is the villainess and she will give as good as she gets, um, obviously, by the end of that scene. But as a first opening gambit, that's pretty on the nose from Connery there. Yeah, it's, it's not great as a scene, but also... I've, I've just remembered it as well. There's a, there's a scene where Domino and Bond are both um, diving and obviously there's a sequence where they come together and start kissing and then they just sort of slowly go down behind the rocks. Um, now, in one of the original takes, originally they were going to have it where just, you just saw Domino's bikini just slowly emerge as it came out, which actually was about to go in the film and I believe it was our Cubby Broccoli that said, no, that's too suggestive. You can't put that in and hope to get away with it that would have been properly carry on wouldn't it if that had have just happened and the bikini floats up <laughs> yeah we said that uh, there was too many underwater scenes but uh, i mean i would have liked to see that underwater scene just for the pure mechanics of it what's happening down there 
Yeah, because he says something about, I hope we didn't frighten the fish, which which implies that they were doing something. I'm not entirely sure what it was that they were doing. I, I mean, you sort of wouldn't like to speculate. Maybe it's an underwater hand job. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, in our final segment, we have the quiz. Uh, so it's over to Adam for this week. Okay, a very different kind of quiz for you both. This is James Bond auction, higher or lower. So I'm going to go between you penalty shootout style with a Bond item sold at auction. All you have to do is tell me whether it's sold for a higher or lower value than the previous item. So uh, who should we start with? Shall we start with Bill? Odd jobs bowler hat valued at £30,000. Daniel Craig's trunks from Casino Royale. Did they sell for a higher or lower value than 30,000? I'll say lower. You're going to say lower? You're wrong. It's higher. Oh, 44,000 pounds. 44 Daniel, grand? Daniel Craig's tight blue trunks, 14 grand more valuable than one of Odd Job's actual bowler hats. You'd only okay. pay that for Sec Linders, wouldn't you, Phil? <laughs> You'd pay that for Check Linders' pork pie hat. Yep, I would. And, and his leftover bargain bucket. Yep. Okay, so Martin, 44K. Honey Rider's bikini from Dr. No, higher or lower than £44,000? I think that should be higher. Maybe it should be higher, but it wasn't. It was oh. lower than £35,000. So again, someone really did want Daniel Craig's trunks. Okay, back to Phil. Daniel Craig's Day of the Dead costume from the opening sequence of Spectre. Higher or lower than the 35000 paid for Honey's bikini? Oh, surely nobody's gone more than that. That's ridiculous. Right, I'm going to say lower. Saying lower? Wrong again. It oh, was... what? That costume sold for £98,500. Really? That £98,500. Someone out there really wants to own everything Daniel Craig ever wore. Okay, back to Martin. 98500 for the Day of the Dead costume. The Walther PPK used by Sean Connery in From Russia With Love, higher or lower than 98 and a half grand? Well, that's quite a high price, so I'm going to go lower. You're going to say lower? You're wrong. It's sold for £277,000. <laughs> okay, back to Phil. You're on two, two questions each, both wrong. It's all the play for. Phil, the Walther PPK from From Russia With Love versus the Rolex Submariner used in Live and Let Die, higher or lower than the Walther? I'm going to say lower, but only just. Your reasoning's right, but unfortunately it was only just higher. That ah. was £300,000. So, wrong again, back to Martin. 300 k the bar. The Lotus Esprit from The Spy Who Loved Me, higher or lower than 300000 This would be good for Phil, because I'm sure he knows the value of cars. I'll go lower. You're going to say lower. I'm afraid it's higher. Oh, this is, this is like a... <laughs> this is a hard quiz. This is £550,000. It was bought by Elon Musk of Tesla. Yeah, I was going to say, because yeah, it, it was recently he bought it as well, I think. So, Phil, £550,000 for the Lotus Esprit from Spy Love Me versus an original quad poster for From Russia With Love. Higher or lower? And £550,000. This is one of those massive posters that they put in the cinema when the film was coming up. I think I'm going to regret this, but higher. You're going higher. 
I'm afraid it sold for £6,000. So oh, God. That is one expensive poster, Phil. <laughs> back to Martin. £6,000 is the bar. Roger Moore's laser gun from Moonraker. Higher or lower? Well, 6K is the lowest price we've had so far, so I'm going to play the odds and say higher. You're going to say higher? You are correct to yeah. say Finally. That went for £22,000. This is now your last one each. So, Phil, if you get this wrong, Martin wins. £22,000 for the laser gun from Moonraker versus the Walther PPK used by Pierce Brosnan in GoldenEye. Oh, surely that's... I mean, if, it's, if that's lower than £22,000, that is ridiculous. I'm going higher. You're going higher. You are correct to go higher. That was £26,400. Only just... Only just higher, but higher nonetheless. So, Martin, this for the win. £26,400 is the bar. The Golden Gun from the man with the golden gun. Higher or lower than £26,400. Let's go higher. You're going to say higher. It sold for £10,000 only. It's lower. So, after five questions each, you've only one correct each, which means we've got a sudden death. Now I'm going to take the closest to the correct answer. I want you both to write down how much you think at auction the Breitling Seamaster Geiger watch from Thunderball sold for at auction. Have a little thing. Write it down. All right, Phil, what's, what have you gone for? So I have said £355,000. Three hundred and fifty-five thousand from Phil Martin. What have you gone for? I've gone a lot lower than that. Eighty thousand. You've gone for eighty thousand pounds. I can tell you the actual price at auction was a hundred and three thousand eight hundred and seventy-five pounds. So Martin, you've won a quiz. Yes, finally. Well a dreadful finally victory, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, really, really closely and badly fought game. There. Yeah, that was quite tricky. That, to be honest. But hopefully exciting and interesting. So, Martin, you get to, of course, choose the song we go out on. There were many rejected themes from Thunderball. There was Dion Warwick's Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Johnny Cash did a version of Thunderball. It doesn't sound like Bond, but it sounds a lot like Johnny Cash. Martin, what are we playing out on? We have listened to all of those very entertaining songs that they are. Uh, And, of course, Shirley Bassey also did a version of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But, again, I'm going to overlook Shirley Bassey. Tom Jones, of course, did the theme song. And I'd like to continue our weird collection of songs as outros and perhaps one of my favourite Tom Jones songs, Sex Bomb. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening. That was Thunderball. And of course, Roger Moore's Cubby Hole will be back with You Only Live Twice. We appreciate everyone who listens along. Feel free to, uh, we'd appreciate if you could go over to the social media accounts, give us a like and follow. And of course, if we reach a thousand followers on any of those platforms, we will release the unedited, uncut version. Exciting as it is, Phil's description of the cars in Goldfinger. So that's uh, goodbye from me, Martin. Uh, It's goodbye from me, Phil. You almost forgot your own name then. And it's goodbye from me, Adam. Spy on.